Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. These are not businesses where you sit alone in a closet and do your work. You have to be out there talking to people. So one of the things I did learn or have to do from an early age was to get out there and talk to people and meet them and build relationships with them. And that is definitely part of, I think, being successful in those kinds of businesses. Welcome to On Brand. I'm Donnie Deutsch. And this is the podcast dedicated to a simple premise that uh, everything is a brand. Every person, every celebrity, every product, every company, every movement, every religion is a brand. The brand is a set of values. And um, what we do here is a couple of things. First, we do an interview with an iconic personality about their own personal brand. And today we've got Steve Ratner, former car czar, former uh, treasury secretary, Morton Joe economic analyst, uh, one of the smartest business guys around. He's got a lot, a lot of smart stuff to talk about, about what's going on in today's economy. Uh, and so I look forward to the interview with Steve Ratner. But what we also do here is what we call our Brands of the Week, where we kind of analyze the brands, uh, the people, the places, and the things that are kind of setting the zeitgeist and which brands are up and which brands are down. And that's what we call our Brands of the Week. And let's get right into that now. Our first brand of the week is Glenn Youngkin. Uh, brand up for Glenn Youngkin. Uh, he won the um, governorship in a previously pretty blue state in Virginia. Um, Biden won that by 10 points and, and Youngkin won by two points. And was it 10 or 14 points he won? I, I think he won by 10 points. But what's interesting why he gets a brand up is not because of the win, because there was a certain playbook that he used that uh, I think a lot of the Republicans are going to use going forward. And that's on the one hand, and once again, I, I don't like any of this stuff, but it worked. And so that's why I don't like it. Um, on the one hand, keep Trump, you know, kind of like, don't be a Trumper, but like don't alienate him, somehow do a little dance. And at the same time, kind of appeal to a more to more of the moderate suburbanites and use also the cultural wars. And what they did and what they did so smartly was they made it about they're taking your school away from your parents. They, they, they want, they, they, they're basically, they're going to be teaching critical race theory in the schools. And the reality is they're not even teaching critical race theories in Virginia, but yet they used it. So what they know is they don't have any economic things to talk about because the economy is so good for the Democrats. They don't have any policies of their own to talk about. And what they do talk about is the scare tactics. And that basically are, they made it a local election. Uh, they took it down to the local school boards and said, are you going to let your school teach critical race theory? And it's heinous and it's racial dog whistles, but it worked and it was very effective. And all the Democrats had was, uh, hey, the other guy's like Trump. And you can't do that. You can't. This, by the way, this guy is not like Trump. He's more like Mitt Romney. He's a former private equity guy. Uh, and he ran a really smart cam- campaign. Insidious, but smart. Um, next brand up is the Democrats. And the Democrats 
have a had a huge win after that loss on Tuesday last Tuesday in the in the in the election on Friday this previous Friday they got their bill through and they've gotten great economic numbers you know I've talked about this on morning Joe they that they they need to read they got to stop talking about build back better and a 1.7 trillion dollar bill or a human infrastructure bill or it's all the economy and call it the the great economy bill, the the the, the reset the economy bill, the, the surging economy bill. Put put both the bills together and start to own the economy. You know, I worked on the Clinton campaign in '92, and there was a, a saying that James Carville put up there: "It's the economy, stupid." And the only thing that trumps culture wars, if the other side is talking culture wars, if you got a great economy, you're going to win. If you got a shitty economy, the culture war argument is going to win on the other side, whatever that culture war argument it is. But whether it's racial dog whistles, whether it's gender discussions, what, what, the stuff that, you know, the, the really evil stuff that kind of just pits one side of this country against another and, you know, kind of just makes everybody afraid of the woke universe. Um, that stuff works except when you have a roaring economy, except when you have great unemployment numbers, except when you have great jobs numbers, except when you have a all-time stock market high. Um, the Democrats need to own the economy. So a brand up for them, but get it right as far as what you need to own. Um, brand up for Joe Manchin. You know, there's been a little kind of talk lately uh, that he could be running for president. And look, Joe Manchin, you may be frustrated with him as a Democrat, but where Joe Manchin stands is where most of this country stands, right in the middle. Even just right setups. I mean, to me, somebody who's able to come in as a hybrid, run as a Democrat, but have a lot of Republican kind of feeling to them, or run as a Republican and have a lot of Democratic feeling. That's where the world lives. It doesn't necessarily win in primaries, but in the middle is what wins. And that's what we're seeing in all the elections of the of the past year or two. So the candidates, these these wacky right, super right wing or super left wing candidates are not the answer in any general election. Uh Congresswoman Lauren Bobart, uh, this is a genius. She goes, I gave birth in a truck. No one deserves parental leave. That's it. She made, was making an argument against a Senator Pete Buttigieg. He took two months of paternity leave when he had twin babies. And he said, listen, this, she said, listen, I'm a mother of four. I delivered one of my four children in the front seat of my truck. Because it was a mom of four, we got things to do. And nobody got time for two and a half months of maternity leave. We have a world to save here. There you go. Another progressive. Jesus Christ. And another genius also is a brand down for, for Senator Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley of Missouri. This, this genius says, liberals' attacks on manhood are driving men to pornography and video games. This, he actually said these things. He told fellow conservatives they must stop liberals from attacking masculinity and creating a nation of idle men who watch pornography and play video games instead of working and raising families. Um, he delivered the speech on the future of American men. He said, liberals attempt to give us a world beyond men. Um, it's part of that larger effort to deconstruct America. The endeavor, according to the Senate, includes critical race theory, economic socialism, and doing away with the concept of gender altogether. Quote, the left wanted to find traditional masculinity as toxic. They wanted to find the traditional masculine virtues like courage and independence and assertiveness as a dangerous society. I missed all that. Uh, Senator Hawley, where, where are you getting all this from? Where, where is the woke mob? Where is the liberal? yes. People are for transgender rights. Okay, we got that. Maybe you got a problem with that. I'm sorry to hear that. Where, where is the attack on masculinity? I'm, I'm missing that. And that saying that that courage is not okay or assertiveness is out. What, what, what are you talking about? Oh, is assertiveness, yeah. Assertiveness in the workplace and men being inappropriate with women or when, men being inappropriate with women anywhere and being too assertive. Yeah, that's a problem. I don't think that that's destroying masculinity. I think that we're evolving as a culture. So break brand down for Josh Hawley. A... Um, Brand up for Edward Durr. Edward Durr is a truck driver who just defeated New Jersey's most powerful lawmaker. 
He defeated Senate President Steve Sweeney. Um, he, he's a truck driver for a furniture store, Raymer and Flanagan. And he beat in South Jersey's third legislative district. It was the biggest shocker of the entire election. Sweeney, who led the state's upper legislature chamber for 12 years. And here we have a truck driver. I mean, what else do you need to know? I mean, I, I, so anybody who thinks just that the days of non-politicians winning is over because Trump, you know, no, you truck driver. So there's anybody in America, and it shows you where the Americans are at. Uh, brand up for James Carville. Um, he basically said that what went wrong in the, in the election last week for the Democrats is stupid wokeness. Um, that in the stuff, I mean, defund the police, take Abraham Lincoln's name off schools. People see that. I just think it's really suppressive effort across all the country of Democrats. It, he's right. This super wokeness, this craziness, this, this, this energy put on super, super left-wing, super woke stuff, that's not what this country wants. That's not what most, a lot, most Democrats want, frankly. So, you know, any of this defund the police stuff, any of this, like, uh, we need to take Abraham Lincoln's name off of a school, this kind of stuff, that, that doesn't fly. So, so uh, kudos to Carville Brand up for kind of waking people up on what's so stupid about defund the police and, and other super woke things. Um, brand down for Aaron Rodgers. Wow. What a bad week for Aaron Rodgers. Of course, everybody knows, well, not everybody knows, but most people know what I'm sure by now that he has COVID-19 and the brand down is not because he has COVID-19. The brand down is because he lied and said he was immunized. Um, and that was his dance around the words. You never use the word vaccine, vaccinated, but when you say you're immunized, that's what that means. And he had some other concoction and shame on you, man. You're a leader. You're in a huddle with players. You're, you're in a locker room, uh, in a physical sport. And how dare you? And this is going to really, really hurt him. This is going to hurt him from a branding point of view. You know, State Farm has been running his ads. I wonder what kind of heat they're getting. You know, he, the problem is at the end of the day, the most important thing for any spokesperson is to be trustworthy. Here we caught him lying in a life and death situation and then being smug in his, his answer, his video he put out that it's all about the woke mob coming up. No, it's not, dude. It's just about telling the truth. And by the way, if you felt you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice. Just be honest about it. Um, step aside then. Uh, you know, Kyrie Irving, I don't agree with what he's doing, but he's he's basically said, I'm not playing. I don't believe in getting vaccinated. Okay, that's your choice. But you don't get to lie. And so I think Aaron Rodgers' brand is really, I don't want to say fatally damaged, but permanently marred. Like if somebody came and pitched me to use him in a product right now, I would say, no, thank you. You can't be a liar. And you can't be a liar about life and death. Brand out from Emilio Estevez. He was fired from the Mighty Duck show over his vaccine mandate. He He's part of the Mighty Disney Plus's Mighty Ducks Game Changers. They were about to go into seasons two. And he didn't want to get a vaccine. So they fired him. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm just missing these guys who are making these decisions. Like, guys, what? Like, do, are your kids not getting vaccinated for the measles and the mumps in school? Come on, Amelia, what's going on? You're a good actor. You've done some great work. You're losing yourself here. A brand up for Newsmax. You never hear me say that. Newsmax, which is somewhere right of Attila the Hun, the news network, who basically have been whacking all over crazy about vaccine mandates and against vaccine mandates. And this is un-American. Well, guess what? Newsmax, this is what they preach on the air. But guess what they're doing as a business? They told the staff on Thursday intended to comply with the Biden administration's company's vaccine mandate. There you go. And all their employees, including its anti-mandate hosts, will have to either submit their vaccination card or undergo weekly testing. There you go. Newsmax on the air saying don't get vaccine or certainly shouldn't be mandated, but yet mandating their employees to do it. That's a real trustworthy news, right? 
Big brand up for Pfizer, of course, a huge week for them. Their antiviral pill uh, reduced the risk of COVID hospitalization and death by 89%. A lot of people think this is kind of the final nail in the coffin on uh, COVID. Uh, some experts saying COVID's going to be uh, theoretically over by January. This is a huge, huge, huge step. Big brand up for Pfizer. Um, so, and it's interesting, as I said, uh, former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb said Friday, thinks COVID-19 pandemic in the United States could be over by January, transitioning to a lower endemic presence. Gotta love hearing that. Big brand up for cancer screening. Brand down for potentially, hopefully for cancer. You never want to give cancer a brand up, but uh, brand up for cancer screening. Um, doctors are rolling out experimental blood tests that may be able to detect over 50 types of cancer. Think about that. Well, cancer is expected to become the leading cause of death in the United States this year. And this is amazing. You're now rolling out, it can hit 50 cancers. The blood test is called the gallery. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. G-A-L-L-E-R-I. It can catch hard to detect aggressive and often deadly cancers like pancreatic, ovarian, esophageal. It's amazing. Uh, it works because as cells in our body die off, both normal and cancer cells have a limited lifespan. They shed their DNA into the bloodstream. So, this is amazing. Imagine you, you, you take a test and you can find out of one of 50 cancers ahead of time. This is a lifesaver. And this is great, great, great news. Brand up for Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. I mean, best guy in the world. Announces his production will only use rubber guns after Rush shooting. Um, obviously, we know the horrible story that happened, the accidental shooting with Alec Baldwin on the set of his movie, um, in the movie Rust. And now Dwayne Johnson is saying he will only use rubber guns. Well, by the way, shouldn't everybody, can't with the technology today, can't you have fake everything? Can't you figure out, obviously, rubber guns, if they look like guns? There should never be real guns used on sets anymore. I, I mean, I, I believe we have the technology to make guns, make fake guns look really real. Uh, we can, I, I can talk to you guys on a podcast. We have the technology to do that all over the world. Uh, we can punch into a computer and in one second find out any piece of information about anybody where we could talk FaceTime in China. I mean, we're sending people to move. Can't we make a fake looking gun that's not a real gun? And Dwayne Johnson evidently thinks the rubber ones are good enough. So brand up for Dwayne Johnson. Brand up for Ryan Reynolds. Gotta love this. You know, he's got his, uh, his aviation gin. Well, he came out with the McRib inspired cocktail. It's called McRib and gin. It's basically, it's the instructional video for the aviation gym riblet, which refers to as a Bloody Mary's hotter cousin. Uh, to celebrate the return of America's favorite rib-shaped sandwich, he invented the perfect glass-shaped cocktail to go with it. Gotta love Ryan Reynolds, the McRib gin mix. Love it. Here's a great one. Brand up for Betty White and Betty Crocker, because within three months, they're both turning 100. And they're two iconic Bettys. They're celebrating 100th birthday. Within three months, they're encouraging home bakers to celebrate alongside them in a campaign with Walmart. Betty White posted to her 1.6 million Instagram followers. The campaign introduced in-store events where participants received $3 Walmart gift cards to bake a birthday cake on Betty. What a great idea. Somebody's thinking. I mean, Betty Crocker, how many Bettys turn 100? And you got Betty Crocker, you got Betty White, beloved, put them together. You got marketing magic. Brand up for Paul Newman. He's going to tell his own story 14 years after his death. It seems as if there were a lot of biographies being written while he was alive. He's been dead 14 years. And that... Towards the end of his life, or at some point in his life, he started recording his own memoirs, putting them down and, and on, on tape. And his family's finally going to be releasing them in a memoir, in a book. So that's nice when somebody who's passed on and they've kind of actually, before they passed on, said, I'm going to get it right on record for all these goofballs who are not getting it right. So good for him. Brand down for Scottie Pippen. He's taking a lot of shit for this. He, he came out in his new book and he took, a, his new book is called Unguarded. And basically... He took a huge shot at Michael Jordan, saying that Michael Jordan's documentary, The Last Dance, 
He paid so much homage to himself and didn't give Scotty and his teammates the proper due. Look, the, 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 the tape is the tape. What Michael Jordan did and didn't do is, is evidence in the game. Michael Jordan didn't recreate history. Everybody knows Scottie Pippen was amazing. He was the number two. He's one of the, one of the 50 now, one of the 75 greatest basketball players of all time. Uh, Jordan and him were not close. There's no secret there. But Scottie complaining that Jordan is making it too much about Jordan, the documentary, was what it was. Michael Jordan is a one of a kind. He is a superstar for the ages. It is what it is. It sounds like sour grapes. Brand up for culturally for South Korea, all of a sudden South Korea, setting the global culture meter. They've got BTS, the biggest band in the world. They've got Squid Game, the biggest show in the world. They had Parasite, the movie last year that won the Academy Award or two years ago. They've introduced 80 Korean movies and TV shows in the last few years on Netflix. South Korea, not a huge country in the scheme of the world, has become a huge cultural uh, place to start trends. So there you go. Brand down for grocery stores. 56% of grocery workers want to quit. They're burnt out post, um, not post-COVID, but coming off the last year and a half, two years of COVID, what we've dealt with. Uh, obviously, they were on the worker. The reasons grocery workers plan to quit is 58% burnout, 52% poor, poor compensation. So you have almost 60% of workers in the entire industry that want to quit. That needs to be looking at. So brand down for grocery stores for being in this position. Um, brand up for Bobby Flay. Old friend of mine, Chef Bobby Flay, he's making treats for cats. Got to love that. Bobby Flay, why not? Um, brand up for Lego. I love this. Lego's first global ads for adults targeted at frustrated grown-ups. They're aimed at adults. It's called the Adults Welcome Campaign. It encourages people to turn their Lego building to help them find a moment of mindfulness in their hectic lives. Basically, it created the following global research from Lego Group that found that 91% of adults said that they experienced stress at least once annually. That's it, just once with 77% checking emails when they say they aren't at work and 64% worrying about work when they aren't there. The new spots feature the tagline, find your flow. So basically setting up Lego as adults is a little bit of a diversion, maybe a meditation type thing to do. I think that's great. Lego is just not for kids. I love it. And those are our brands of the week. Now let's get to our interview with Steve Ratner. Steve is a, he's got a lot to talk about. Um, he saved the car industry working for Obama. Uh, he's the economic voice on Morning Joe. He runs $50 billion of money from Michael Bloomberg. Um, he's got a lot to say, and here's my interview with Steve Ratner. I love that sound. That's Shopify, of course, and it's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Uh, it's a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs like myself the resources once reserved for big business, customize my needs with a great-looking online store that brings my ideas to life and tools to manage my day-to-day -day and drive sales. Um, it makes it easy for anyone to successfully run their business. Shopify powers over 1.7 million entrepreneurs, guys like me from first sale to full scale. About every 28 seconds, a small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. -day. Gain knowledge and confidence, plus with 24-7 support, you're never alone. It's more than a store. It grows, Shopify grows with you. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie. That's all lowercase, shopify.com slash Donnie for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie right now, shopify.com slash Donnie. I want to talk to you about Chime, that's C-H-I-M-E, Chime. 
When your online checking account balance is running low, the last thing you need is a $33 overdraft fee. Overdraft fees have gotten way out of hand. In, in 2019, traditional banks took in $11 billion in overdraft fees. Chime is an award-winning app and debit card that has saved its members more than $10 billion in overdraft fees with SpotMe fee-free overdraft. Eligible members can overdraft up to 200 bucks on debit cards, purchases, and cash withdrawals with absolutely no fees. This is, gives you peace of mind. Get started today at chime.com slash Donnie. That's chime.com slash Donnie. You deserve to have financial peace of mind. Join the millions of Americans already loving Chime. Sign up takes only two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. That's chime.com slash Donnie, chime.com slash Donnie. Banking services provided by and debit card issued at the Bancorp State or Stride or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements apply. Overdraft only applies to debit and card purchases and cash withdrawals. Limits start at $20 and may be increased to up to $200 by Chime. Chime member overdraft fee savings based on eligible members' use of SpotMe versus $33 average overdraft fee. Overdraft fee data based on bank rate, checking account survey, and CRL June 2020 overdraft fees report. I am thrilled that today's guest and on brand, uh, Steve Ratner. Steve is a friend of mine. One of the smartest guys in the world. One incredibly interesting biography. Started as a <clears throat> New York Times writer. Ended up somehow as an investment banker, a partner at Lazare, one of the founders of uh, Quadrangle, one of the kind of first big-time private equity firms. He was a former treasury official, uh, was the car czar, basically saved the car business in this country. Uh, he's a Morning Joe regular. He now, uh, I guess you could say, runs all of Bloomberg's $70 billion. Uh, he is a writes op-eds for the New York Times. He's got a book overhaul, an insider's account to the Obama administration's emergency order rescue. Kind of a renaissance, man. Welcome, Mr. Ratner. Thank you, Donnie. I'm happy happy to be here, my good friend, for many years of uh, Morning Joe. Yes, yes. And uh, you, you know, you've got such a fascinating background that you know the question I ask everybody on this show. This show is, of course, about brands. And I ask people to kind of define their own brand. What's the Steve Ratner brand? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, look, I I guess well, some people could look at me and say, well, he could never hold a job because he kept changing <laughs> jobs. Uh, I think calling me a Renaissance man is excessively generous. I think I'm a guy who likes to do a lot of different things. And uh, I guess uh, I guess if I were defining my brand, it would be someone who uh, has a, a a business background, lives in the commercial world, but has interests in public policy and the future of the country and in a range of different things. One thing that's just kind of really curious about your background is there are not a lot of people in the history of the universe that go from being columnists or writers at the New York Times to investment bankers. Just give me that pathway, how that happened. It was a little bit of, uh, of luck, I guess. I decided for reasons we can talk about after eight and a half years at the Times, I'd started a week after I graduated from college, so I'd never had another job. I thought I ought to try something else. And I looked around and this was 1982. And I had a lot of friends who had gone into investment banking. And I thought about other things. I won't bore you with my whole thought process. And I thought, well, that looks like an interesting one. So basically, it was really uh, what we used to, what they call on Wall Street, dialing and smiling. I could call, I called everybody I knew, tried to get interviews, tried to knock on doors. And eventually, uh, Lehman Brothers actually said, well, look, you can come and try it out here. If it doesn't work, it's kind of your problem. It's not a big deal to us, but it'll kind of be the end of your career. But I figured, what the hell? And I went and tried it out, and that was uh, what was that? Almost forty years ago. There you go. What you you have somebody who just has has always had this incredible Rolodex, and I, I don't mean that that's a funky term, Rolodex. But you just are connected in so many ways. 
uh, to so many kind of business titans, to so many public officials. You are really kind of an inner circle kind of guy. Does that go back? I mean, obviously it's your personality, and, and but does that kind of go back to your journalist days and just always reaching out to people and making connections that way? Because maybe that's kind of what brought you something special into the investment world. Well, first of all, of course, some percentage of your listeners and viewers don't know what a Rolodex is. We don't know what a Rolodex is. <laughs> Putting that aside, you and I are of a certain age that we had, well, actually had Rolodexes. Yes. Yeah, no, I think there's some truth to what you're saying. Uh, journalism, but I've also come to learn many other businesses, most other businesses probably, but journalism certainly is built uh, to some degree on relationships. It's not just about relationships. You have to be good at writing or broadcasting, whatever it is you're doing. But having relationships with sources, with people who would help me with stories, give me information, explain things to me, was a big part of uh, being successful as a journalist. And that is also true as an investment banker, very much a relationship-driven business. These are not businesses where you sit alone in a closet and do your work. You have to be out there talking to people. So one of the things I did learn or have to do from an early age was to get out there and talk to people and meet them and build relationships with them. That is definitely part of, I think, being successful in those kinds of businesses. I want to go back to the mid-2000s, or specifically uh, 2007, because it's going to bring us to today. You were one of the first guys to see the financial crisis coming. In hindsight, we all look back now, and it was so obvious in hindsight, but it was so hidden. What were the cracks you were seeing back then before the the mortgage uh, uh, debacle and I want to bring it to today because there's there's certain cracks we're seeing today. And and uh, just take me back. What did you see that other people didn't see? Well, I think I do think a number of us saw it. I don't want to sound. I don't want you to make it sound like I they was, were a, uh, a very small yeah. small group of people. Sort right. Uh, but I, I I think I think uh, as I remember back to that period, as you looked around, you just saw huge amounts of leverage in the system. You saw prices for assets at levels that didn't really make any sense, housing obviously being the poster child for it, but other things as well. And you saw lots of lending going on at what we would seem to me to be risky, uh, risky levels of leverage and at incredibly low interest rates. And all that seemed to be a recipe for a problem. And you also saw nobody doing anything about it, everybody professing it was all kind of fine, it was going to work itself out. And obviously it didn't work itself out and the rest is kind of history. The one parallel I see today that scares me a little bit, I mean, obviously we're looking at different situations today. We're looking at inflation is the frothiness that my, you know, being of a certain age, what I've seen over the years is whenever everything kind of just seems, everybody's making money hand over fist and it seems so easy. That's when the kind of bottom falls out. What should we be afraid of right now? It is it is a little different from 07. Uh, there certainly uh, uh, there should be a level of fear, but it's not, it's a different kind of fear, uh, maybe somewhat different because I think inflation is something we should be worried about. I thought what you were going to say, and maybe you implied this, is you and I are of an age where we can remember inflation. There are many of my colleagues and friends who don't even remember inflation because mm-hmm. it hasn't been around for 30 years. But I think when you see what's going on out there in terms of sensitive prices like commodities. Now, you know, oil is, uh, gasoline is now close to $4 a gallon, uh, cotton, corn, <clears throat> all these things, and used cars, the things that kind of move in a market. Uh, inflation, is, inflation is very scary. But at the same time, as you implied, uh, the stock market is very high. And even more, even within the stock market, when you look at the growth companies, the tech companies, I was actually in California last week in both Northern and Southern California, 
And the valuations of some of these young companies uh, are breathtakingly high. Breath, mm -hmm. Now they're good companies, but the valuations are crazy in many cases. Going, staying on inflation for a second, because we know it's not a good word and the average person understands, okay, it means prices are going higher. What does that do to the system? What, what is that? All of a sudden, price of bread is going up, price of used cars is going up. What now kind of just pick me up in the cycle? Where does that take us? Sure. Well, the first thing that happens, and it's happening now, and I think we'll get to politics, I'm sure, but I think this is a piece of uh, the challenges that confront the uh, current administration, is it means that people's purchasing power is going down. So everyone has probably read or experienced themselves, for that matter, that wages are going up faster. That is true. But inflation means that after adjusting for inflation, wages at the moment are actually, in many cases, most cases, going down. And that is very painful for the, for the average American. So that's the immediate impact. The second thing that happens is that at some point, the Federal Reserve has to act and raise interest rates to slow the economy down and take some of these inflationary pressures out of the system. And when that happens, when the Fed moves, and it, they're not ready to move tomorrow, but it's not, it feels like they're getting closer to moving, when that happens, two things happen. First, the economy slows down. Higher interest rates mean there's less borrowing, less economic activity, and so forth. But secondly, it almost certainly has a negative impact on the stock market because the stock market is very closely tied to interest rates. High interest rates are the enemy of high stock prices. And so those are the things that you would expect to see happening in sequence. When, I don't know, but it's definitely closer than people would have said six months ago. So what could break that cycle? You were once the car czar, now I'm making you the economic czar. You're, you're, you're in charge of the World Bank, you're in charge of the Fed, you're, you're the, you've got the ear of the president. If I could give you the magic wand right now, it's okay, Steve, here's what's going on in the economy. Here's uh, what would we do? Uh, there, I really, a couple, there's not that much we can do in a sense that the cat is out of the bag. We mm -hmm. have put an enormous amount of government stimulus into the economy, $2 trillion earlier this year, and, and a lot more the previous year for good reasons. COVID was sure. a huge problem. No getting around that. But the things we can do now are one, the, the Federal Reserve is still buying, is buying $120 billion a month of bonds and securities. And that helps keep interest rates low. And while I don't want interest rates to go up, they do need to start to go up to curb some of the success of borrowing and so forth. So I, that, is, that is step one. Um, I would not yet raise interest rates. I think the economy still does have to recover a bit more. But I would try to avoid putting more stimulus into the economy right now. Now, we can talk about the Biden plans if you want. Mm -hmm. And I'm in favor of much of it. But this is not the moment to be pouring money in the economy. This, is, this money needs to be uh, spaced out over a period of time so that we don't overload this economy and create even more inflation. I want to talk to you about Canvas, C-A-N-V-A. Making content is, essential, is an essential part of what I do, and I keep this show going, but it hasn't always been a seamless creative process. Canva Pro is a design platform that empowers you to create and share stunning content in just a few clicks. Designing with Canva Pro is amazing, fast, and fun. Choose from thousands of templates that are easy to customize or start from scratch. It's got endless premium tools, photos, videos, and so much more. They add personality and edge to whatever you're designing. I'm telling you, man, they got a, a whole toolbox of stuff. Whatever you're designing, whatever images you need, whatever you're looking for, photos, fonts, videos, tools, everything you need. Designing together has never been easier. Sharing, editing, and commenting in real time. Canva Pro helps you stay organized on the same page and on top of team projects. Plus, you and four teammates can unlock everything Canva Pro has to offer for just $12.99 a month. 
With Canva Pro's content planning, you'll save time planning, creating and posting social media content too. Pause, schedule posts, and edit them at the same time. It, it's great. I'm telling you, if you're creating anything, you want to create any kind of content, Canva Pro, design like a pro with Canva Pro. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you use my promo code. Just go to canva.me slash Donnie to get your 45 free days of extended trial. That's canva.me slash Donnie, canva.me slash Donnie. Yeah, I have two issues with the entire Biden plan. There's the one you talked about, that it's just throwing kerosene on fire. It's too hot, and and it's going to overstimulate the economy. But I have a problem also for the Democrats, that it's going to make them vulnerable. That I I just think if you give the, even though the it's popular with 60% of the people, because if you say to people, oh, do you want free college? Do you want this? Everybody's going to say yes. It gives the Republicans a, a club I call the Socialist Club, that all of a sudden all the Democrats alert so far left, and it's socialist, and it's cradle of grave entitlements. And it just doesn't feel in my stomach the right thing for the Democrats? It's an interesting question. Um, Look, first of all, as you know, Biden is not doing well at the moment in terms of public opinion. He's down to 41. He's 12 points on the water now. I just read that today, which was staggering. I mean, since July, the change has been been, uh, meteoric. It's extraordinary. And you can, you know, we may want to, you may want to talk about Virginia, where there's a governor's race uh, election next week from tomorrow, Tuesday. And uh, Biden carried the state by 10 points. And at the moment, he's polling six points underwater in Virginia. So that's a swing of 16 points. So yeah, it's extraordinary. And then, so then the question is why? And I would, I'm not sure whether I agree with you, Donnie, uh, or at least so I don't sure the, the public agrees with you. If you look at the public opinion polls, at mm-hmm. least until recently, for the first time in decades, the idea of government doing more, of leaning in, of trying to solve these problems, actually polls positive, has been polling positive. Whether it is, as we sit here today, whether it will be when the actual deal is announced and people understand what it's, what it's all about, I can't say. But when you look at the polls, people are worried that the number one issue today, actually, I, uh, interestingly, is inflation. The public yes, has figured out caught, that inflation- caught up to it. It's finally passed corona. It absolutely has. Yeah. What, um, why, I have my theories I want to hear from you. Why is Biden all of a sudden- gone so south in terms of people's perception. I think it's a confluence of events, but I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I think it's a confluence of events, too. I think uh, I think Afghanistan uh, was a, a disaster. It uh, it may well pass, but uh, there's there's nobody in America pretty much who thinks it was handled well. The border is another huge problem that the public perceives to be a result of Biden encouraging people you know, with this idea that it was going to be a different attitude than Trump and people should come and try to cross the border. That's another another huge problem. I think that I think he may have overpromised in a way. He he's basically cast himself as a transformational president, one who's going to be LBJ and FDR put together. But the problem is he doesn't he didn't really have a mandate to do that. The Senate is 50-50, as you know. The House is very, very slightly Democratic. And in contrast, LBJ, when he was president, had a 169-seat majority in the House, and he had 69 Senate seats as Democrats. So he actually had a mandate. And Biden is trying to pass these transformational proposals with the slimmest, the slimmest possible, yeah. slimmest possible majority you could have. And so 
people, so, so people are disappointed. They think he promised all this stuff and now it's not happening and they blame him for it. I think there's another thing happening with Biden and it's what I, I'll use our, one of our Jewish words, this gestalt that you, people feel with him. You know, he ran and he was fortunate to be running in Corona because it was kind of, he wasn't out there that much. We didn't get to see that maybe he's lost five, 10 miles off his fastball. And I think that translates somehow. It doesn't feel like he's got his hands firmly on the wheel. Obviously he is, he is a, uh, a, a nice uh, response to Trump and we'll, we'll take the kind of the boringness, but there doesn't seem to be a, um, uh, a strength that's emoting from him that this public reacts to it one way or the other. I think that's f- fair-ish. I, I would a little bit take the other side. And I guess a little bit, it depends on what you expected. Uh, I, I guess I was worried about Biden and I do think that he has he has for the most part managed to speak clearly and to the point and uh, succinctly and a lot of things people didn't think he could do. Uh, I think I, I, I. But that said, he's not. He's certainly not been uh, a dynamic leader. I, I can't argue with you about that. But I I think he's been. I, I think his stuff he said publicly for the most part has been to the point and appropriate and and correct. You think if Donald Trump ran today, he would beat him? Well, it's interesting, you know, the, the, uh, I did see a poll yesterday that they polled dead even, actually. Yeah. And so, you know, Biden won by 7 million votes, and now they're polling dead even. So who knows? Look, I I, I just can't believe that that uh, we can argue or discuss who the Democratic nominee will be, should be, whatever. But the idea that after January 6th, the idea that after four years of Trump, everything we've learned since then, the idea that even if you were running against Mickey Mouse, that the country would want this guy to be president again. So what does it tell you? What You're somebody that you're, you've watched your behaviorist in certain ways. You obviously, if you study the markets, you're studying people, you're studying why people do things. So explain to me, and I ask a lot of people this, I get the first time around where it was like, oh, Hillary was a terrible candidate and maybe he's just saying things to get elected and he's an outsider, he's a businessman. Well, there, there was a lot of reasons to vote for him, even even as repulsive as he was. My question is to your point, after seeing what we saw and seeing Jerry, describe why half the country goes, yep, we'll, we'll take more of that. I think this gets a little bit to the question of why Biden is not doing well. I, I think that the, I don't think the country is not so much on economics, maybe. And so now I'm going to get out of my comfort zone, but maybe on more on cultural things and identity. I don't think the country is exactly where Biden is. And I think Trump, Trump, look, Trump's genius, and you know this is your area, not mine, but Trump's genius in 2016 was he put his finger on something that was bothering people, you know, people who didn't want transgender bathrooms, people who didn't want to defund the police, you know, people who, who didn't want it to all be about inclusiveness and minorities and people of color and, and all that and all those things that I think are important, but not the rest of the country, you know, the, the forgotten middle class, middle, uh, middle wage white worker in Ohio uh, who had a job making $50 an hour in the GM plant and then lost that job when the plant closed and ended up working in a Starbucks and making $15 an hour. You know, that's, that is Trump's base. And that base is no happier today uh, with Biden than it was before. And so I do think he commands a, a significant section of the country because of this feeling that the Democrats, you know, and many of Trump's voters were historically Democrats, that Trump's, that uh, Biden's, uh, that Biden's uh, world 
has moved away from them. Yeah, I, I'll put it even simpler that I, I think that the fact that we're heading, you've said this with all the, the examples, that whites are going to be a minority in this country in the next 15 years, less than that, um, that terrifies people. And race is at the bottom of all of it. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and what, what Trump did, he did the dictator's playbook. You play on an other, you create an other, uh, whether that other is a Mexican or a Muslim or a banker or a, a, a Wall Street person, uh, to create hate and create fear. Uh, you get the truth so it's all mixed up. You demonize the press. You get a Justice Department under the wing of the executive branch, and that's the end of democracy. And what's so frightening, what I, what I, I sit with bright people that you and I know, and they casually will, you know, address what's going on with how, how much on the edge our democracy is and what's happening right now in the legislatures in the states. And that we forget that we were basically two or three decent human beings away from the election being overturned. Brad Raffensperger, if you have a guy on the other end of the phone who says, yes, I'll find you the 12,000 votes. And a, and a guy in Georgia, and a guy in Pennsylvania doing the same thing. And now Trump is teeing it up for this time around that more people are not running around with their hair on fire. We, our hair should be on fire right now. Our hair should be on fire right now. But you know, one of the ironies of this, one of the oddities of this, which I can't completely understand in my own mind, is that the people who should feel in a way most destabilized, uh, turned upside down, whatever you want to call it, by all these changes are people who live in cities like New York, where which has been a, a majority-minority city for a couple of decades, I mm -hmm. think now, a good long while anyway. The people in Ohio who are Trump supporters, some of them have probably never seen a black person or yeah. a Muslim or any of them. You know, their lives really haven't changed that much directly. They may read about it. They may see it on television, but it's not their the little hometown in Ohio hasn't really changed. So it's really uh, ironic or odd that the people who are most upset about these changes are the people in a way who felt it less directly. They may have felt it indirectly but not really directly. Well, I, I think the logic is they're unhappy in their lives. And when somebody's unhappy in their lives, you say it's not your fault, it's somebody else's fault. It's a very powerful thing that trumps everything else. You mentioned GM. I want to go backwards a little bit because one of the most important parts of your career and something you must be proud of is is your job as the uh, being hired in the Treasury uh, Department to be the car czar. Was that the official title or was that just what the press called it? There's a long story behind it, but the short answer is is what the press called okay, it. It, so was not, gonna, it was certainly not an official title. Basically, as, I, as, I've, as, I've said, as I've said to people, my my ancestors, some of whom came from Russia, uh, would have been found <laughs> uh, rather odd and curious that I was now a czar when they had left Russia to escape the czar. So Obama taps you to come in where the world is on the brink. We're just coming out of the financial crisis. Banks are going under. And the car business, the U.S. car business was basically on the brink of going out of business. They, these companies were bankrupt. And you were brought in because of your financial acumen, because of your relationships, to fix this. And in a very short period of time, obviously, you working with other people. Take me back there. Take me through the call. Take me through what you walked into and, and kind of the playbook at that time. Well, the first thing I would say is that of all the things I've done in my career, and as you pointed out, I've done a lot of things, maybe too many things, it was by far the most satisfying. Sure. Uh, to really make a difference, not just make money for me or my investors or Mike Bloomberg or whatever. It, this was incredibly satisfying. But essentially, uh, after the election in 2008, uh, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, who you know, top two guys on the economic team, both of whom I knew for many years, reached out and said, do you want to serve? And I said, yeah, I'd love to serve. This is kind of my time. Uh, it's a financial crisis. And I thought I'd be doing something with banks or whatever. 
And after a while, they came back and said, no, we want you to do cars. And I said, cars? I don't know anything about cars. I don't even drive a car practically. I live in New York. And they said, you'll figure it out. And so I showed up in Washington to try to figure it out. And it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. But I came, I realized that without doing anything, these companies were going to completely collapse, going to bankruptcy. A million people were going to lose their jobs. And, and nobody, I think most people didn't think we could even fix them. And so I figured I didn't have much to lose and a lot to gain if I could help figure out a solution. And so we, we put together a SWAT team, mostly of people from New York, from Wall Street, with Wall Street backgrounds, a couple from Washington with policy backgrounds. And we got to work. And uh, uh, it was uh, much to my, somewhat to my surprise anyway. It, it, you know, it actually worked. I have a friend who writes cookbooks. And one time my wife made one of her recipes and, and she said to the lady, you know, your recipe was great. So she said, I, really, I've never made it. So I'm glad it worked out. And that's kind of how I felt about, <laughs> about the car thing. What was, I, what was I, the recipe? What was the recipe? It was some kind of muffins. No, um, I'm talking about the car recipe. Oh, oh the cars. Uh, look, the, the, the recipe was basically to get shared sacrifice from all the stakeholders, that the only way this problem was going to be solved was if everybody from the lenders to the stockholders, to the workers, to the suppliers, to the dealers, all were willing to take shared pain. And with that, and the use of bankruptcy and a few other tools, uh, we could be successful. The other secret to the success was Congress had voted this $450 billion TARP fund uh, the previous fall to help, really it meant to help the banks, but we had access to it. And so we, had eight, we used $82 billion of it for the cars, and we were able to do it without ever going to Congress. It was like a big slush fund, in co which yeah. Congress immediately had regretted passing. But the point is, and this is relevant to today, that Joe Biden has to fight with Congress for every single line item and every proposal he's trying to make. And we could literally, with a signature from Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, disperse $82 billion. And so I'm not here, I'm not arguing against democratic government, but I will tell you, it's a lot easier to make change and make it work when you can basically do what you want and do the right thing and not have to worry about the politics of it or sure. getting through Congress. Yeah, unfortunately, dem democracy comes with that. But you and I who come from the private sector understand that. You know, I remember even just running a private company versus running a public company, my advantage of just, you know, basically, let's do what's right. And I don't have to worry about quarter to quarter. I don't have to worry about a board. And and so obviously the thinner it is at the top and the less layers there are, the easier it is to get things done. Would you have a certain public office again? Probably not because I didn't know what I didn't know. I had, <laughs> I had for a long time wanted to go down there. And it had never been the right time, not the right president, not the right time for my family. And 2008 is, I really was the right time, and I'm so glad I did it. But I realized that part of why I was able to succeed was because we did have a huge crisis that had to get solved. You couldn't let a million people be out of work, and everybody kind of knew that. And secondly, as I said, we didn't have to go through the legislative meat grinder that you see going on now. And so neither of those two things is likely to reoccur at the same time. And to go down there, and and beat my head against the yeah. wall and i commend i i have total respect for the people who are doing it but uh, i i don't know i've been in the private sector too long to to want to be in that kind of a situation probably i want to shift to just some some basic overall economic questions i'm fascinated to hear a guy an old schooler like you i want to hear your, your take on crypto uh it's funny i was just in california and we spent a lot of time talking to crypto people i i, I First of all, I don't believe in investing things in things I don't understand, and right. I don't understand. Right. It doesn't make any. It doesn't. 
it doesn't make much sense to me. And you have to separate crypto into two parts. There's the cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, sure. which sure. is which is just a notional thing. Uh, and that I really don't understand. And we can come back to that if you want. But then there's this thing called blockchain, blockchain which is the technology that enables it. And there I have become persuaded that there there is a there is a there is a there is something investable there that blockchain is real that it can be a better way to keep track of transactions to process transactions and so forth uh, the problem is how do you invest in it the market is completely overheated and so forth and many different we can talk more about that if you want but I'd separate the two the currencies themselves uh, I think are are kind of wampum um, the the technology that underlies it there's some interesting pieces to it. So what plays out with for our listeners out there that bought their you know fifty thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin? Uh, how does this thing play out? How does it either blow up or how does it keep going to the moon? Well, so far they're smarter than I am because I haven't bought any of them. Right, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I have bought. I just my, my theory behind it was simple that if enough young people believe in it, it starts to become somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I just set up, I mean, I put a couple of dollars in, nothing serious, but just to play and, you know, <laughs> I triple my money, but I mean, that's, that's fool's gold. I do understand that. Well, there's nothing wrong with playing, but the idea that because a bunch of young people like it, you know, it's like those old Roadrunner cartoons where Roadrunner is running and running along and then suddenly looks down, he realizes there's nothing below him. Right. That's the risk. That's the risk. I'm not predicting it, but that's the risk here. That at some point people wake up and say, "What is Bitcoin for? Why do yeah. I own this? Why yeah. is it sixty thousand um, dollars?" So the answer is I don't know. Uh, predicting timing is impossible. Yes. There are there are currencies like Ether that really do have a role in this blockchain technology that could well have real value underpinning them. Uh, something like Bitcoin, which has no real role in the world. It's not even gold. Even gold has an industrial use. Yeah. You can make jewelry out of it. You can put it in your teeth. This has no use. Uh, and I just don't know when or how, but I, I, I'm still not a buyer. And explain to me NFTs, because I'm just reading how people are, I collect art actually, uh, and how people are buying digital scribblings, nonsense, uh, for a half a million dollars that basically everybody has on their phone. And just take me through that because that's that's the one that baffles me even more than Bitcoin. Well, I wouldn't do, I'm not sure I'm the best. I wouldn't do that either. Um, but I, I think the analogy is to art, which is that you, uh, you buy a Picasso, you own an original Picasso. There's never going to be another one like it. And if it's a beautiful thing or a special thing or something that can't be replicated over time, somebody's going to want be willing to pay you more for it if you ever want to sell it and so forth. I mean, that's that's the theory of the case. Some of the stuff that's being sold is crazy. The, the half a million dollar number you mentioned happens to be, I think, almost exactly. There was a technology columnist for the New York Times who put one of his columns up as an NFT, kind of as a joke, and thought he was going to make, get like $600 and give it to charity and end up selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so I, I don't get that either. I and mean, I, I think that if it is something, there, I think there is something like, I think you could believe in something in some kind of digital art. I think you could believe that digital there are things art. Yes, that, yes. I think you could believe that there are things that could be rendered digitally that really are special. So you could say, you know, a video of LeBron James. Why is that an NFT? But I could also say to you, somebody could make a thousand copies of your Picasso. Right. They could look exactly like the one you have on your wall. So why are they not Picassos? And so the, the theory of the case, and I'm not necessarily underwriting it is that if LeBron James says, this is the only video of me dunking that ball, 
yeah. um, that I, you know, that I'm going to endorse or say is really mine, then maybe it has a lot of value. That's, yeah. that's the argument. Hey, let's talk about Morning Joe a little bit. How did you, we're both part of the posse there. It's really a fun group. It's, it's uh, obviously people ask you all the time as they ask me, because it's a very visible show. It's kind of a show of record. Uh, how'd you get involved? I went on the show, uh, I think I went on the show to promote my book, actually. And, you know, Joe and Meek and I kind of hit it off. And it was actually, you know, there was still the tail ends of the financial crisis. And I said to them, or they said to me, I don't remember exactly how it happened, you know, the show should have an economic analyst. And so I said, yeah, uh, I'd be happy to do it. So I am, you know, I am technically uh, the morning Joe economic analyst. <laughs> and, the, and the weatherman, right? And the weatherman, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got my, he's got his charts. I got my charts. When you do um, your charts, do they say to you, we'd love to do something on labor or you just kind of say, this is what's going on. This is what I want to come talk about. Uh, occasionally they will come to me with a suggestion, but you know, I've been doing this now for 10 and a half years. Yeah. And at this point they'll say to me, come on on Tuesday and I'll send, I'll just send them the charts at yeah. you know, eight o'clock the night before. And, um, you know, and and I, I think we trust each other. They know that I'm going to do a good job, and I and I know they're not, yeah. uh, you know, they're not watching me that closely. And I have to do a good job, so I'm always. I try to be on. I don't want to get fired. You know? Yeah, you and I. <laughs> it's a big income we both make from that. You and I are probably two of the. If I'm going to talk about the ten year plus folks, it's Heilman. It's probably the Rev. It's yourself. It's obviously Barnacle and Willie. I'm trying to think of who else would be in that rarefied ten year club. No, there's not many of us. There's not many of us. So, you know, the circus moves on and uh, people get other jobs. They have conflicts, whatever. Um, but yes, you're right. There's not many of us who, who are in that club. But I'm, uh, look, I, I used to, you know, we don't have to get up as early now that we are not. Oh, it's such a difference. It's, 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 I know, it's such a difference. I went into the studio last week and, in, in, you know, in the half hour, the hour turned into three hours. I mean, it's just, it's a completely different thing. I mean, it really is. It's a completely different thing. I still like going to the studio, but I'm glad I don't have to be there at quarter to six and stay for three hours and all that. But um, uh, I forgot where we were going with this. But uh, getting, you know, getting up at 4.30 was painful. And so now I just kind of come do my charts and, and move on. And <laughs> I do fun. my charts. And talk to me about work. You're obviously very clo close friends with Mike Bloomberg and uh, kind of you guys are business partners now and that you've been running uh, that huge sum of money. How did the relationship form between you and Mike? Well, I think it's back to what you're saying about relationships. Well, we were friends, really. We met back in the mid-90s um, at a dinner. I remember exactly where. And then it turned out we had a lot of common interests. We both skied at Vail. We both liked to do some sports, but didn't really like to watch many sports. We both were in business. We both had an interest in the media. Mike's always been fascinated by the media. We've both had an interest in politics. So we just were very simpatico. And we were really friends for more than a decade and never did any business, never even really talked business. And then he came to me one day and he said, you know, I've got this money that's piling up. He was mayor then. It's kind of in this blind trust, but I feel like I should do something with it. Will you manage it? And I said, Mike, I don't know how to manage that kind of money. I do private equity. It's like asking a cardiologist to check on your sure. ankle. Yeah. And he said, you'll figure it out. You're my friend. I trust you. And so that's how it started. Uh, and that's that's been 12 years or so now that I've been doing that. All right. Before I let you go, you're still a young man. Give me the next 10 years for Steve Ratner. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, I say the next 10 years for Steve Ratner is just to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm at a point in my life where I don't think many people are going to ask me to do something new. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of almost past my sell-by date, right. but I love what I do. So I want to keep working for Mike and managing his money. 
I want to keep doing Morning Joe. I want to keep writing a little bit. And I've got my charities and things like that. I just want to stay healthy and do exactly what I'm doing for as long as I can do it. I've climbed all the mountains I need to climb. I just want to stay uh, close to the one I'm on now. I kind of feel the same way. It's nice. We're lucky guys. Steve, you're a good man. You're a good friend. I know how busy you are. I really appreciate your time, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me, Donnie. This was fun. I'll see you at Avra, okay? All right. See you at Avra. (laughs) Have a great day, buddy. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, as I always say, remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, anywhere else. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And watch us on YouTube and subscribe there and also leave us your comments. Remember to subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe anyway for the uh, audio parts, for the visual parts. We want you to subscribe. We want you to rate. We want you to review. We want you to comment. We want all of it. I want everybody to have a great week. We'll see you next week on on. El condado de Santa Clara está pasando por una emergencia de sequía extrema. Valley Water le pide a la comunidad que limite el riego de jardines a un máximo de dos veces por semana. Trabajemos juntos y digámosle sí, ahorrar agua. Visite watersavings.org para más información.